You're listening to The Emulsion Podcast, a show that informs and inspires the restaurant industry to work, live, and create better. My name is Justin Kana, and I'm a chef and media producer with almost 10 years of experience in award-winning restaurants all over the world. I created this show as a way to give back, to inspire the next generation, and to help you progress your career. The Emulsion Podcast is sponsored by you folks, and Patreon is where that happens. If you're here as a return listener and you enjoyed the episode you just came from and happen to want to support more episodes, I'd really appreciate it. Go ahead and check out patreon.com slash justincana. Thanks in advance if you can. I totally understand if you can't. Free ways you can support this show include leaving a like or comment on this video, filling up all five stars on iTunes, or simply sharing an episode with a friend. This is a solo episode. Yep, it's just you and me. I'll be dishing up a curated list of articles, happenings, and headlines that I've been paying attention to over the past few days, and then season them with my perspective and opinions on the latest industry stories. If you want to dive deeper into any of the stories I cover today, full show notes are available on justincona.com slash podcast. And if you come across a story you'd like me to feel feature in a future episode, shoot it to me on Twitter and hashtag the emulsion so I can find you. Let's get ready to welcome your host for this episode, Justin Kana. What is up, folks? Specifically to Sean H., my dude out of Ohio, Erwin A. as well, thank you, thank you, as well as what is up to Jason M. That's my brother's name, Jason. All these folks are the newest supporters of the show. They were excited and kind enough to go on Patreon and make that a thing. I'm not going to disclose last names going forward. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe to protect privacy. If you want your full name, shout it out when you do uh, support me on Patreon. Send me a message on Patreon after you join that, and I will make sure that that happens. So thank you so much for the love. I appreciate you. We are just starting this very long journey on our way to 1,000 patrons, and you all that have decided to do that help in that progress. So in this episode, well, this episode might just be the perfect archetype for a Emulsion podcast episode. I know sometimes I stick to the original framework of talking about fine dining news only, and only that, but other times I talk about big food businesses and smaller food businesses and bakeries and and ware shops and purveyors and all of that more or less lends itself to inspiring fine dining in some way shape or form uh but at least in my opinion the stories that we're rocking today include dessert discrimination a new norwegian pop-up from a very young chef eater pulling their stingy price shit again a noma restaurant in japan flynn mcgarry and gem which a lot of you have been asking me to cover and a couple more. You're just going to have to stick around for that coming up. Today's beverage is this. I'm at my dad's place, and his favorite beverage is Diet Coke, so that's what I have to work with. Him and I went out for coffee this morning, which is great, but I'm back now uh, driving to Michigan later today to see more fam, fam damly. So yeah, that's that's today's beverage. I don't think we've had a diet beverage on the show before, but this, that's so that's a first, I suppose. This first story we're going to cover today is a particularly interesting one, and that's because it's written by a chef that I personally respect, uh, and that is Alex Stupak. He published a piece in Bloomberg, and it is titled "Dessert Discrimination uh, Must Be 
what does that say? Stopped. Dessert discrimination must be stopped. Restaurants are under financial pressure to cut out the dessert menu, but one chef makes a case for celebrating those that get the sweet stuff right. That is the tagline under that article. So he talks about his career as a pastry chef for the 10 plus years that he was in it. For those of you that don't know, Alex Dupac spent time at Alinea and WD-50, and then everyone thought he was crazy to open a taco place in New York City, but he did it, and he was smart enough to kind of realize that being a pastry chef and being a restaurateur are two very different animals, and he was able to take inspiration from it, but also kind of take a step back and not try to be a pastry chef restaurateur, if that makes sense. He realized that there was different sets of skills that go into both of those jobs. So he says about pastry chef, his pastry chef days, quote, the job then as now is to transform edible materials into flavors, textures, and visuals that gratify in a way that savory food simply cannot. There is shelter, there is and there is architecture. There are clothes, and then there is fashion. There is eating for sustenance, and then there is dessert, end quote. To kind of get in the economics of it, they asked Gabriel Stolman, who gives stats about uh, diner times and sharing desserts. You know, sometimes if you go out for with three to four people, you'll be likely to order like one or two desserts and then split it. You don't all get your own individual desserts. And then the that kind of magical threshold price for desserts, which is she says around twelve dollars. If you definitely want to get deeper and you're nerdy like me and want to get into the numbers, I highly, highly recommend this article, especially because it was written from Alex Stupak's perspective. Um, it wasn't an author, food writer, kind of getting the opinion of a pastry chef and then just pulling a couple quotables from that person to the article. It was, it's actually written by a pastry chef, which is great. As always, full show notes are available on justincana.com slash podcast if you want to check those out. But a really interesting point they brought up that I didn't really think of as a contributing factor of this current, quote-unquote, current state of the pastry chef world is the dietary restrictions. So with media telling the average person, the average diner, that carbs and gluten and sugar are all bad— it's almost a more prominent status symbol to decline the dessert menu because of your quote-unquote diet as opposed to saying yes and then dropping another 10 to $20 on dessert. Does that make sense? And to me, that's absolutely crazy uh, because times are changing, things are shifting, and it's really, really interesting to see that, that you're almost seen as cool as, you know, cooler to say that you don't want dessert as opposed to... Uh, dropping a little bit more cash on dessert. But he continues to talk about his own restaurant and how he's implemented a quote-unquote plate of seven one-bite permutations of fruit, end quote, which Pete Wells, the New York Times food critic, was particularly fond of. And his attention when he reviewed um, the restaurant and, and, and praised that plate or that presentation so much, that attention has increased sales of that dessert and his desserts in general fourfold, he says. So a little bit of a plug for the for the media attention there. So my personal opinion on a piece like this is a little fragmented. On one hand, yes, the economics don't make sense, right? There are all of these obstacles preventing great pastry work to be showcased in restaurants because, frankly, if the talent and the audience isn't there, it's just not a practical use of time or money or human resources, right? However, on the complete other side, I'm all for creative expression, and I've had a number of friends complain about what they would call quote-unquote chef-driven desserts. And we all know them, right? The ice cream sundae, the play on s'mores, the chocolate lava cake, right? These things that it's easy for us chefs to either outsource to a 
cook, like a line cook, uh, or the person on Garmage, that's, you know, you open your freezer, you do a scoop of ice cream, put a little garnish on it and send it out, right? But the consumer is ready for more. And articles like this showcase it. Um, Chef's Table Pastry coming out showcases it. But we had, in my opinion, we had to take this kind of dip in pastry chef popularity to get to this point, right? Like, it's the, it's the you don't know what you've got till it's gone kind of thing. I'm personally, am I personally looking to hire a pastry chef to do desserts at my pop-ups? No, the math doesn't work. And I credit that to be part of the problem, right? Like, I'm personally a savory chef, and if what I want is to showcase my food, that's technically what I went to school for. I can do multi-course pop-ups because 80 to 90% of that product is savory, right? And then I would do something simple for dessert and hide behind the quote-unquote simple is better approach to desserts. Not necessarily going like full-on chocolate lava cake direction, but I would do something like, you know, if it's in the summer and I'm getting a bunch of amazing fresh berries, you can serve that with like cream and a simple crumble. And that's going to make a lot of people happy. Um, but if you're a pastry chef, you don't have a lot of options as far as pop-ups go. If you're coming from all of these restaurants and you want to kind of flex that part of your resume on people, because you can't necessarily do a savory menu because then you're going the other way, right? 80 to 90% of your product is something that you're not known for. Um, so where do you stand as a pastry chef? It's a really, really troubling thing. So it's probably one of the reasons that I loved the Will Goldfarb episode of Chef's Table Pastry so much. It's a shining example of someone who had to go through all the kitchens and abuse and openings and closings and come out the other side and confidently open room for dessert, which notice I said confidently. There are tons of people who open dessert bars because they think that it's this trendy thing. And But when it's your lifeblood and the epitome of the perfect brick and mortar for you, it's going to have a different feel to it. So overall, to me, this article should have been called Dessert Appreciation Must increase instead of dessert discrimination must stop because I don't think the masses are necessarily discriminating against desserts but I do think that if we were able to be more intentional and savvy with our pastry chefs and dessert offerings everyone would be a winner but that's my that's my takeaway if you have a takeaway yourself leave it in the comments I would love 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 to continue that conversation with any of you folks so the next few stories we're going to get into are going to more or less jet set into Scandinavian land. Um, I want to talk about first Eater's big roundup of all the big critics on Noma 2.0. It's really, really fascinating to see these authors of food from all over the world rant and rave about Noma in a way that's almost unanimously positive across the board, right? They open all the right doors, uh, Noma does, for criticism, right? W through Whether it's through originality or price or story or atmosphere or service or flavors, it all, from all of these critics, gets a resounding thumbs up. And I think we all underestimate just how titanic and weighty that is. I mean, I personally remember when Ferran had El Bui, everyone was talking about, you know, sometimes like 40% of the menu wasn't actually delicious. It was just flexing on people with what techniques they could do. Uh, or even taking it a step further back when London and Paris had all these best restaurants, we would see complaints about price or complaints about uh, service or atmosphere or, or, or what have you. But I don't think at least in my time in the industry, we've seen such unanimous praise for a restaurant that's operating in that level, right? I don't have much more to say here other than I personally want to go back to Noma. It really makes me want to go have another meal there. My meal 
couple of years back at the original space was one of the best I've had in my life. So it's easy to create hype. I just think it's a lot harder to live up to that hype. So so props to, to, to the guys at Noma. That actually perfectly segues me into my next story. If it works in Copenhagen and it worked for a short time in Japan, what is stopping Noma from opening another restaurant? They are going to do it. They're just going to go for it with Inua. I hope I'm saying that correctly. It is a concept headed by Thomas Friebel, who is a German guy who has been at Noma for a long time. He was super inspired by their pop-up that they did in Japan, and he's 100% going to head this next project. So he says, quote, well, the article says, quote, our vision was to create a Japanese slash Nordic design utopia in terms of interiors and atmosphere. This is coming from Thomas Lieke of OEO Studios. He says, quote, we have worked with local materials as well as Japanese inspired details and applied them in a more Nordic way, as well as in novel and unexpected ways. The 60 seat restaurant will serve Nordic influenced dishes, showcasing Japanese ingredients such as mountain vegetables, fruit from Okinawa and seafood from Hokkaido. End quote. So Inua will be located on the ninth floor of the Fujimi building in Chiyoda, central Tokyo, and is open for bookings now. In my personal opinion, there isn't a ton to be surprised about. I actually find it really funny that Renee wants to expand into Japan, and Gagan, who has also been awarded that quote-unquote best restaurant title, is going to Japan. We covered that story a few weeks ago. I just feel like there's something about Japan that's really pure and simple and inviting for a chef that the hustle and bustle of any other city in the world or countryside in France or upstate New York can't satisfy for some reason. I feel like it just has that right mix of like amazing product and excited guests, and I totally wish them the best on this new project. I, I, I'm excited to follow along with this with this concept, and I really feel like Renee is getting into that point of being able to go all time, right? Like he's getting to that point in his career where he's created so many talented individuals and his web of influence is, is so large. We're going to look back and he's going to, he didn't get three Michelin stars, but he did a lot more than that, if that makes sense. So it's really, really fascinating to see. And I'm excited that I get to cover stories like this. So next up, a project I've been kind of cl been keeping my eye on very closely, and I've been waiting for a kind of thoughtful review on it. Anders Husa, a friend of mine and a food blogger out of Oslo, paid a visit to the N-O-M-N-K pop-up. And I'm not sure if that's exactly how you pronounce it. It's probably another way to pronounce it in Norwegian. But what it is is an acronym for Nit og Modern Norsk Choken, which for those of you that don't speak Norwegian means New and Modern Norwegian Kitchen. And even my Norwegian is a little rusty there. That was that was rough. So this young guy, Simon Nilsson, is the chef. And this N-O-M-N-K is a pop-up of his in the space of a restaurant called 1877, which is in Bergen, which is the city that I lived in for a while. It's a beautiful space. Um, super huge props to those guys for letting a young chef like Simon step up and host these events. But Anders does a great breakdown of the space in on his, his website. Uh, the tagline of the article he wrote is, these apprentices are tomorrow's star chefs. So he breaks down the experience. He's got his beautiful photos to go with it. And he really tries to draw this web of inspiration for Simon because Simon is so young. It's very difficult to understand uh, where he's getting his inspiration from and, and why he's doing the food that he's doing. Um, so he talks about his apprenticeship, number one, um, 
which he just finished, but also his numerous stages at places like Mamo and Geranium and Geist, which he also staged at. But in addition to that, he's also channeling a lot of the old school Norwegian traditional recipes, which if you haven't spent time in Norway, is kind of difficult to articulate and explain. There's lots of uh, porridges and preserved and salted and smoked meats and fish and pickled vegetables. A lot of them are region specific though, because when you think Scandinavia, you think that already, but they all have kind of stories to go along with them based out of basically necessity, uh, like a lot of these Scandinavian places are doing, but he definitely weaves that into his menus as well, which is great to see. But overall, I'm in kind of two camps with this story and the concept in general. Uh, because yes, on one hand, I'm kind of, uh, part of me is like rah, rah, go get him for Simon, right? He's young, he's ambitious, he's focused, he's not just talking a big game about his food, he's actually putting it into reality. He's getting all this amazing experience, he's growing a following, he's eating out all over the world, he's exploring his heritage. I'm a huge fan of checking all of those boxes. But then there's this other side of me that's kind of like the old man chef that's like, you know, you got to learn to pay your dues and learn to lead other people. It's going to be a lot harder when you have your own kitchen. And a lot of his dishes are definitely inspired as kind of like, I would argue, ripoffs of other chefs, you know, kind of like serving dishes in mahogany clamshells. And there's lots of sorrel in his plating and nasturtium and that very minimal Nordic aesthetic, which I'm not trying to demonize, right? Like it's beautiful. It's very distinct. But again, you should you should be kind of playing cover songs when you start to get a feel of what it's like to plate when those dishes and 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 if that's your experience that's going to shine in your food because you went to go work at those places because you were excited about that food so when you have to cook your own food it's very easy for other people to call it copying when really it's just the food that you're excited about so it's 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 it is the most effective way to progress your creativity is to cook like that. But similar to another chef that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, in just a few minutes, you got to make sure that you incorporate longevity and consistency into your vision, and not just these kind of quick sizzle, flash in the pan pop ups. And this is me speaking from experience, right? Like I had a write up in Eater last year when my pop ups went live, and. In my opinion, I launched them way too early. They didn't have a defined vision or a story to tell. It was just me kind of like creating this hodgepodge of different uh, dishes from all all my experience. And that was essentially what I called it. I called it ready for a reason because I finally felt like I was ready to start figuring out what my food looks like. So in that regard, it was a very successful project, right? But on the other hand... it fell flat and it wasn't able to stand the test of time. So me being such a long-term thinking kind of person, I instantly want to give advice. But on the other hand, he is in the 1% of young chefs doing his own events, marketed under his own name, doing food that inspires him. And whether or not you think that that is original or not is kind of irrelevant, right? Because we're going to look back at this time in his career and say it completely set him up for later success. So, that's more or less my, my, my rant on that. If I were to go back to Bergen, I would 100% want to go visit his pop-up um, and maybe do like a video for him. I don't think that the food that he's doing is something that I'm excited about eating only because I've had a ton of those flavors before. Um, I mean, the food's beautiful. His plating is beautiful. But if you showed me a photo of it, I would probably say it looked like Noma, looks like geranium, looks like Mamo, um, very similar flavors and all that. So... I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at with with that story. We're going to move on. In 
I'm starting to see a trend news. Eater did a piece on Dominique Crenn's new Parisian salon concept, Bar Crenn, and gives it three out of four stars. So they knock it off for a couple of things, but any guesses on what those negatives were? Yep price. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this story just because, frankly, I'm not that excited about the writing. I just thought that it was a, it was hilarious for, what, the third week in a row. Now on the show, we've covered pieces that praise restaurants to the moon, and then they're like, but it's kind of pricey. You know what I mean? So I'm just sick of it, dude, right? Like, you don't see food writers harping about Apple and the price of the iPhone 10 or how expensive tickets to Coachella are. But the second that they get a chance to weigh value for money on a great food experience, they immediately become penny pinchers. And I'm just kind of sick of it. It's it's a business, right? Like businesses exist to do two things, strive for a mission and profit. And if there was one line that I could empathize with a little bit in this article, the author says, quote, we opted for the wine pairing. It was lovely, particularly the rare Loire Valley Sancerre, but it too wasn't enough. Call me a wino, but for $65, I wanted more than the allotted three half glasses spread across our almost three-hour supper. Or maybe it was just the pacing was off. The Sancerre was poured long before our salmon souffle arrived. I took my first bite with my last sip. It would have been nice if our server had noticed and offered a splash more. At these prices in this heady atmosphere, it would have been appropriate, end quote. So yes, in a case like that, like I said, I'm able to empathize. I can 100% see where you feel like you've just kind of been shorted if you spent 65 bucks and only got uh, three half glasses of wine. But part of that is expectation. Part of that is poor communication from the restaurant. But it's just complete insanity to me that eat, I see eaters summarize their breakdown of a place. And then the first bullet point that they give is what it costs, followed by the, yep, what to drink and then uh, what to eat in a restaurant review. Like, to me, that's just crazy. To Is it them catering to a younger demographic that only cares about cheap eats and prioritizes price over everything else? Maybe. I mean, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, right? Like maybe their data shows that their audience cares about price first and food second. And if so, mazel tov. But come up with another series of stories that doesn't demonize chefs for charging what they know that they're worth, right? Like create a separate category of stories or put a certain writer on covering restaurants that are a little bit in a higher price range so that because to me I feel like they're afraid that by covering these more expensive restaurants they're going to get backlash from their audience that says yeah great that you covered this story but it's super expensive right like I, I I talk about it all the time with my uh, this place called episode in Austria Francescana. There's so many comments on that video that talk about like I would have left there hungry or yeah it's super expensive. Uh, who pays for that kind of a meal? Because that's just what some people think. But I feel like if they were to preface it with that way or make it in a way where they could they could confidently write about food, high-end food, in a way where they don't have to kind of include this asterisk about price every time it would make it a lot more pleasurable to read. So my biggest thing is like if Dominique Crenn wanted to get rich, she would license her name more. She would be doing more cookbooks. If she wanted a kick-ass Parisian style bar, that's what she did. And I'm, I'm over it. So evaluate the experience, not the price. That's my rant and it's over. We're going to move on. Next up, I had a few of you ask me to cover this in whether it's YouTube comments or shooting me DMs on Instagram. And I've also been pretty amped myself and following along very closely 
with Flynn McGarry and Jem in New York City. So it's his more permanent home. It's his own restaurant. He is actually getting some really, really solid reviews on it. So let's start with those, and then I'll give you my thoughts. So Rachel Sugar from Grub Street did a really, really satisfying to read piece on Flynn, kind of giving his current state of of where he's at in his career. So yes, she does do a lot of the backlog of like he was in LA, he was doing all these pop-ups in his parents' house, blah, 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 blah. But um, it's not just talking about the food. Uh, but it's getting a grip on his philosophy right now and where he's at right now and what he's excited about. Um, he's about to turn 20, so that teenage chef thing is about to go away. Uh, I really, really recommend you read this article because especially if you don't know anything about Flynn or you want to get a little bit more information about him or his restaurant or kind of where he's at. I know a lot of people talk shit on Flynn when he first came into the limelight, but now it's it's satisfying for me to see in reference to the story we just covered about Simon in in Bergen, a chef that is young and ambitious and going to do it without the traditional stigma of, you know, you have to work your way up in a kitchen, become a sous chef, become an executive chef, and then you can do your own thing. Um, but it starts off by talking about the word casual and what Flynn thinks about the word casual, and this I thought was really interesting. So he says, quote, to me, a casual place, you don't get incredible service, but that's fine because it's casual. The food comes out a little bit late, but it's fine because it's casual. The chairs are uncomfortable and the space is too loud, but that's fine because the restaurant is casual. And she says what really offends him is the idea of using casual as an excuse for mediocrity. Quote, I think it's this weird situation where things that are nice are being degraded because they're too formal, end quote. And for me, this totally explains why I've had a really fun time following along with the restaurant. So Flynn says the restaurant has changed several times since they've opened. They serve, quote, 32 people per night across two seatings, 6 p.m. and 9 p.m., offering a tasting menu of 12 to 15 tiny, beautiful courses that are cooked, plated, and served with excruciating care. The vibe is Scandinavian. The furniture is heavy mid-century, heavily mid-century, topped with the architectural arrangements of fresh flowers and thick vases. McGarry saying, quote, in the seven weeks that we've been open, we've been three different restaurants, end quote. So speaking of that, Jem is actually his mom's name, Meg, spelt backwards, for those of you keeping score at home. I didn't really know that, uh, so that was an interesting little fun fact. But more on the project itself, something that pr- hit pretty hard for me. He says, quote, at Jem, McGarry, uh, the article says, quote, at Jem, McGarry manages a team of 11, most of whom are also almost as young as he is. They're all great, but I have those feelings that every once in a while, uh, quote, this could have been better if I did, just did everything end quote. But he can't do everything, so he has to communicate this vision to someone else and live with the outcome. Quote, if a painter was like, here's the painting, you guys do it, and then we're going to sell your painting for the same price as mine, and it will get reviewed in the same way, but under my name, it's fucking stressful. End quote. So you try telling someone how to slice and fry a baby artichoke so it blossoms like a highbrow bloom and onion, and then on top of it, arrange small uh, arrangement of herbs and not only one but two different butter smooth purees, end quote. So it goes on to talk about reviews, most of them positive, the pressures of being this young guy, nicknamed a prodigy, and all of this work that goes into living up to all of that is excruciating. I can't, I, back to the patience thing I spoke about with, with Simon. It's easy to get recognized for doing ambitious food when you're young because you're young, right? Like it's just cool that you're doing 
X number of courses at whatever age you are. But translating that into a concept that can stand on its own is a huge achievement. And I, I, I also think that we're um, underestimating how big this actually is and where this inflection point is in his career. Because all the media experience Flynn has gone through to get to this point, the pop-ups and the failures and the setbacks, it's just a really inspiring story. So I have yet to watch his documentary. It's on my list for sure. But overall, hats off to Flynn. I'm really, really taking a lot of inspiration uh, from his style for myself as, as far as like you don't have to go in the traditional path. It doesn't I'm from that generation where you had to work your way up to be a sous chef, executive chef, and then you could have your own restaurant. He's done none of that. So, and he's getting great reviews for it just because he loves the game. He loves the grind. Um, but he's struggling with the things that I'm also struggling with, which is, you know, how do you outsource? How do you delegate? How do you put trust in your, your people when your name is on the door? Um, so overall, really, really good article, and I definitely recommend you read it if you're thinking about doing things of your own and you're thinking about taking that next step. Uh, quickie story I want to cover real fast. Uh, it's a restaurant opening in San Francisco. It happened, let's see, 10 days ago, so they've been open for 10 days. And it was in San Francisco. They just opened their doors. The restaurant is called Birdsong. And it's from Chris Bleedorn, who was the former chef de cuisine at Atelier Crenn and a veteran of Cezanne. Like I said, they opened May 1st in the Mission, and I'm super, super lukewarm about it. Like, I'm not cold against them, but I'm also not crazy excited in any capacity. So they are seasonal. They are West Coast sourced. They're tasting menu focused. They've got a 12-seat counter, two private dining rooms, and then the overall vibe is kind of a mix of Saison and uh, maybe like single thread if I had to put my my uh, head, my foot on it. I, I think you should just look at the photos. They're seriously jaw-dropping. I was really not imp uh, expecting to be that inspired by the space, but it is beautiful in there. Um, but I feel like a restaurant like this will fail to be catapulted into the limelight because of the lack of story to go along with it. Um, yes, they're sourcing cr incredible stuff. Uh, they're actually coming up to Seattle to do a lot of that, which I think is great. But it's very, hearing the interview and the way that the story was pre presented, it's very lofty. It's very like in the clouds talk with the ingredients and the preparations and their philosophy to food. There isn't a lot of strong foundation in like the why of the cuisine. Like what's the story being told? Um, a lot of what they're doing, in my personal opinion, is kind of like this because we can cooking, uh, which is like cooking over a wood fire, using a lot of preservation, cooking with the seasons. But to me, all of, a lot of that is like the cost of entry into a fine dining restaurant these days. Um, and yes, you want to use all those techniques because they're tried and tested as being pure and clean and requiring a lot of skill. But with places like Meal and Noma pioneering research while at the same time doing all of those things, and even like June Baby in Seattle, yes, doing all of those things, but also creating an encyclopedia and trying to share knowledge, I personally struggle to see the impact of a place like Birdsong in a five to 10 year macro, right? Like maybe they get a star, maybe they manage to stay open, but they say it themselves, right? Quote, as we evolve, maybe we'll get bored of the Pacific Northwest and pick different cuisines. This is what the chef says. He says, authenticity evolves, end quote. So to me, that's just a huge eye roll, right? Like pulling from both sides here. If people want 
Pacific Northwest inspired food and you're excited to cook it, do that, right? Like I'm not saying don't go where the trends are and don't just leave it all on the table because you're romantically creative and artistic. But at the same time, if you're that quick to move on, I fear that there's not enough to get the guest excited about your food. Does that make sense? Like it should either be super solid in your concept and that's the concept of the restaurant or it should be constantly changing like next in Chicago or I think about like dialogue in LA. Uh, same stuff. They're cooking over wood fire. They're constantly trying to be seasonal and source from stuff on the West coast. But so much of it is Dave's story, um, that goes along with it. So I'm struggling to kind of see where that is with this restaurant. Um, I'm a hundred percent going to keep my eyes on it, but maybe it's just the way that the story was presented. Um, I'm not convinced yet. So that's my, that's my little rant on birdsong. So last up, uh, industry, style is our little direct answer um, segment, which is kind of me responding to one of your folks' direct messages. So um, this one hits particularly close to home for me. I asked this gentleman if I could cover it on the show. Shane underscore O'Hear asks, um, I'm going to read his whole direct message for you guys. He says, I worked hard on the weekends and in the summer during high school, and when I graduated, I decided to dedicate a year to seeing where I could go in the kitchen. I started as AM prep and a porter. Eventually, I was given a shot at the breakfast hotline and the restaurant and also uh, at the hotel. I crashed and burned hard. I was able to create the dishes properly, but struggled with prep, station maintenance, and multiple order execution. From there, I was moved over to family meal and butchery. Then he says, some time passed and I was eventually moved on to the PM team, which felt like I was going from AAA to the majors. I worked canapes for the remainder of my year. He says, my question for you is how did or do you make the transition to a hot station and how do you handle the complete ownership of a solo station? Obviously, I'm young and worked stations for relative beginners, but definitely saw my weakness in my ability. Um, And I'm kind of paraphrasing. This was a very long DM, but I'm just kind of trying to get to the meat of the question here. So for me, I absolutely know what you're going through. I know how you feel. I spent the first five years of my almost 10-year career doing what you're saying, you know, kind of like working cold stations, prep, um, helping other people with their mise en place. And it's a totally different animal. It's the first real shift you'll see yourself go through when you go from that to working a hot station because timing is more crucial working with other people is more crucial um multitasking gets way out of control and like you said uh, station maintenance is also really really crucial because um with a lot of those colder stations it's really easy to prep everything before service and then service is just plating but with a lot of restaurants not only are you uh trying to go into your prep but you're also cooking and you're also sometimes plating and you're also sometimes prepping (laughs) during that because you're about to run out of stuff. So for me, my biggest challenge was that I had all this experience with all these amazing restaurants, but I didn't really know how to cook, um, like you said, on a hotline. So things that really um, helped me in that time was to ask a lot of questions of your sous chefs, I gave this answer to another person. Um, Don't be afraid to ask them, what's the best way to do this, right? Like if you're getting a new dish, 
and you're setting up your station for the first time with this new dish, ask them, say, what is the best way to set up my station for this dish? And they're going to give you their advice. And as you start to do that more and more and more, you're going to start to draw from your past experiences and say, okay, I like the way that you did that, but I know that it's going to work better for me to do it this way. Um, there's a bunch of other really interesting techniques you can use. I don't know if marking your board is something that you guys are familiar with, where you kind of keep track as the orders come in of how many things, um, you know, like if you're getting lamb is part of the tasting menu or part of the a la carte menu and you you're starting to see how the orders are coming in so you can get a bird's eye so you're more proactive in setting yourself up for success as opposed to being reactive where you know the expediter tells you pick up three lamb you're like oh crap then you gotta like run around and see what you need for all this lamb but if you're putting yourself in a, and this, this comes in a number of ways. You can either write it down, you can have a dry erase board on the side or like a dry erase marker on the side of a oven or a wall. You can, I would use it with actual pieces of protein. So the order came in for two tasting menus. I would pull out two pieces of fish to temper, um, because I knew I would have to cook those. And then as I'm cooking things, I can look and see on my tray. Oh, look, I have 16 pieces of fish, that means 16 tasting menu orders are coming in. Oh, what comes before that on the tasting menu? Oh, the scallop dish, right? So then, oh, now I know that I need 14 scallops uh, or 16 scallops or however many I said. So all things you can do to set yourself up. Um, it's a illusion to think that station maintenance can be achieved in some way, you're constantly fighting it, right? Like you constantly have to fight to keep your station intact to achieve that total station domination. So don't think that there's like a hack or a trick that you'll do to put yourself in a position where you never have to worry about station maintenance anymore. It's something you always have to stay on top of and fight to, to, to re regain control over because if you don't, you're going to immediately descend into chaos. And I guess the other tip that I could give you, so things to think about, is asking your manager, if you're new, what is the best way to do this? Don't be afraid to ask that, because that's what they're there for. That's what they should be there to do, is to help you, put you in the best place to succeed. Find a way to get a bird's eye and be proactive instead of reactive with all of your dishes and your incoming things. Three, fight to keep your station on point. And the last thing that I would probably suggest you do is, um, I think that's going to more or less be it. I'm going to come out with a couple of other videos because you guys keep asking me station questions and, and, and stuff like that. The last thing that I would probably say is to put yourself in a position where you can safely fail, if that makes sense, because on the other side of that is improvement. Does that make sense? So it's like if you're used to prepping for 45 covers every night, the only way that you're going to get better at prepping for 45 covers is to prep for 60 covers, go down and understand what that feels like to fail because you'll learn all these little nuances of how to go faster and push yourself beyond that. And then and only then can you truly say that you're a master at 45 covers because you know what 60 covers feels like. Does that make sense? So don't get intimidated by those situations. Yes, keep them in perspective, but also keep in mind that 
on the other side of that is insane improvements. That's where you really start to see exponential growth is that, you know, I was really good at prepping for 75 covers, but only when I did a party for 120 as a banquet, like basically by myself, did I fully get really good at prepping for 75. Does that make sense? Um, patience. It's the other thing. It's not going to come tomorrow. Um, but that's my, that's my little direct answer to you. And I hope, I hope it answered your question. Um, I'm always happy to get DMS from you folks and answer questions if I have some free time available, but if you want to go deeper or talk through your ambitions or progress your career, getting that raise at work or building a personal brand or hosting pop-ups, I do offer one-on-one coaching. It's typically one hour long coaching sessions. If it's something that you want to explore, please check out justinconnacom slash coaching. It really allows me to go way deeper than just kind of a back and forth message or a answer here on the podcast. I do these because I know that they will help a lot of you um, and provide some value and help you make your next move. In our non-industry story of the week, it's funny enough, I didn't have the, uh, I, I almost didn't have the best one, but then this morning, I, it was actually, the, the, the non-industry story this week was actually going to be a song that I've been jamming out on lately. It's called Sore Losers by Russ, and I just love the way that that guy talks shit. He's just a really good rapper, but check that song out. It's called Sore Losers by Russ. The music video is really good because it's just one take just him and his boys hanging out. But um, the real non-industry story is from a channel called L2 Inc. And I found it this morning on Twitter. Someone retweeted it. And it's called The Algebra of Happiness. And I was really surprised how many of these equations that this dude presents I'm actually implementing in my life and why I think I've achieved a relatively high level of happiness myself. I'm a pretty happy guy. Hopefully some of you see that. But I have a lot to be grateful for. But the one thing that I'm constantly grappling with myself is that balance of patience over speed. Like, I want to make moves. I want to see stuff happen. I love progress. But at the same time, I'm on, like, year two of a 20-year career right now. So struggling to be patient is, is, is something I'm struggling with. But the other one is balancing gratitude and hunger, too, right? Like, I love the idea of being grateful for what you have and realizing how good life is. But it can't all be that, right? Like you have to be hungry for what's next. And this algebra of happiness video really said it better than I ever could. And it's the the thing that it emphasized and cemented for me the most is that happiness it, it, it's not a happiness equals blank situation. Right? It's like there are multiple factors that are weighted differently that all contribute to your well-being and your feeling of having a purpose in life. And when you're working on prep and getting screamed at all day, it's really easy to not feel happy. So maybe this video will give you a new perspective. I highly recommend it. It's going to be linked up in the show notes. Otherwise, you can just search Algebra of Happiness on YouTube if you're interested in checking that out. Thanks for listening to the Emulsion Podcast. I appreciate your ears more than you know. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help sponsor the show, head on over to patreon.com slash justincana. Other ways you can help out right now include giving this show a review on iTunes so more people can find it. I also love seeing you folks liking and commenting on the video if you listen that way, or even just share this episode with a friend. Now is normally why I would tell you that my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got an another podcast episode to listen to so i'm just going to get out of the out of the way here excuse excuse me